0: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50 F-I-F-T-Y at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilich, a doctoral candidate in Modern European History at Vanderbilt University. In today's episode, I am pleased to host Dr. Aisha Zarako, Professor of International Relations at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Zarako's research brings together historical sociology and IR and focuses on east-west relations in the international system: history and future of world orders. Conceptualizations of Modernity and Sovereignty, Rising and Declining Powers, and Turkish Politics in a Comparative Perspective. In 2011, she authored After Defeat, How the East Learned to Live with the West, which deals with international stigmatization and integration of defeated non-Western powers into the international system, Turkey after 1918, Japan after 1945, and Russia most recently after the Cold War. For the next 45 or so minutes, we will discuss her fascinating new book, Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders, published by Cambridge University Press earlier this month. This ambitious, beautifully written study offers an alternative macro history of sovereignty, of order and decline, narrating the emergence and fall of a vast Eurasian system of interpolity relations, Between the 14th and 17th centuries. Dr. Zarekal, welcome to New Books Network and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Thank you for
1: having me, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: As is customary here on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous research had led you to write before the West. Your earlier works centered on hierarchies in world politics and the place of Asia, most broadly conceived, in global history of of order. Uh, How have these preoccupations joined to make this latest project possible?
1: Thank you. Um, It was a um, long journey (laughs) to get from the first book uh, to the second one. I'm interested in you know uh, how international orders evolve, and uh, you know I'm interested in where we're headed in the 21st century when it comes to uh, international order. Um, so, in order to kind of answer that question, I was working on uh, the concept of sovereignty, the forms it may take, and uh, I was looking into history. Um, just to, you know, see different forms of sovereignty uh, other than uh, the, the nation-state model that we're used to from the 20th century. So I started looking in, um, you know, historical forms and I, I was studying uh, um, the Middle East in particular. I was looking at, you know, evolution of sovereignty in Muslim-majority uh, Muslim majority, uh Contexts, uh, and as I, you know, traveled down that route uh, historically, I became very dissatisfied with the histories that were uh, available <laughs> in international relations. Uh, essentially, you know, there was nothing uh, outside of, you know, Europe, uh, outside of Western Europe, one might say. Um, anything going further back than, you know, seventeenth century. Doesn't really exist in international relations. Uh, so, you know, working from, uh, of course, I mean, historians have, <laughs> you know, done amazing work. Uh, but the historical accounts, um, I was, you know, they focus on particular regions, particular contexts. Uh, so when I, you know, when I was working from historians' work, I, uh, was questioning about how it may be connected you know to the larger uh, whole the bigger picture so um you know kind of you know dabbling in that literature, I eventually decided that I should write the book that I wished existed, uh, which is uh, you know I'm kind of a macro historical account, not just focused on you know the area that we call. The middle east today west asia but you know uh, kind of fill out the blanks in terms of you know all of asia or what might or one might call eurasia i wanted to kind of write the international relations the history of international relations and sovereignty outside of europe uh, so that's what i ended up doing uh, and the before the west is you know the product of that journey mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful. So let us start with sovereignty, which you have already mentioned. Your analysis revolves around an original rethinking of the entire concept, uh, especially as is usually used in the fields of international relations and political science. Mm -hmm. Would you please elaborate on how your work contributes to a new global history of sovereignty?
1: Thank you. So you know, in international relations, we say uh, the state is you know the pr- primary unit of international politics, and we talk about state sovereignty, um, and we often drop you know the various qualifiers. I mean, there is an awareness, of course, state sovereignty as it exists now is a you know product of various historical processes, uh, but we kind of take it for granted. You know, the the, the way that state sovereignty manifests itself now, I mean, what characterizes state sovereignty today is, you know, uh, territoriality, the idea that, you know, states have <laughs> territories, and you know, that territory is uh, uniform, you know, their borders clearly demarcated, uh, uh, power or authority is centralized, so there's, you know, political centralization, and there's, then there is, you know, mutual recognition uh among states. That's basically, you know, international relations 101. Uh, but as I said, you know, I'm interested in how uh, sovereignty can evolve into in the future. Uh, and being interested in that makes me interested in how it has evolved historically in, in the past. Uh, so uh, one thing that I'm trying to do in the book is think about different forms sovereignty can take. So you know if you take those pillars of you know centralization and territoriality you can think about alternatives you know what if um you know what what forms does political centralization take um uh, can you have state without territoriality um in a in, do you need uh, you know the external recognition so in the in the first chapter of the book i kind of try to typologize the different ways these features can um can manifest on the ground in practice you know as the, and they have it historically but uh, within the context of Eurasia I'm interested in a particular uh, amalgamation of of these features uh, which I contrast to you know nation state or westphalian sovereignty of the present day uh, and what what I'm Kind of studying or tracing in the Eurasian context is uh, what I call chinggisid sovereignty, uh, which is a, a particular form of sovereignty that I argue uh, the, Mon- the Mongol Empire disseminated, and then that particular sovereignty inspired successor empires, uh, and you can clearly see, um, you know, its uh, its influence on successor uh, polities, and you can you can see. Um, you can also trace some secondary institutions uh, associated with this particular form of sovereignty um, in success, successor polities as well. And that allows me to kind of um, study a different kind of order uh, that was formed by units that had a different understanding of sovereignty um, that can be contrasted and compared to our present day understanding of sovereignty and the international order that
0: it creates. This is a the perfect segue into my next question. Uh, contrary to many older accounts, you argue that Eurasia was for centuries the arena of world ordering. Uh, how did the earliest form of a truly globalizing order emerge out of the Central Asian steppe and and what are what are its characteristics uh, apart from world conquest?
1: Thank you. Um As you said, in the book, I'm looking at a particular period between 13th and 17th centuries. And I'm arguing that, you know, in in the 13th century, uh, Asia was made whole by the uh, empire of Genghis Khan. Um, And now there's a caveat here. I'm not claiming that, you know, Asia wasn't connected before this point. There were were a lot of connections before, but... uh, you know, in the thirteenth century, Genghis Khan uh, you know creates this empire that spans from um, essentially you know the Pacific Ocean all the way to you know present day you know, Eastern Europe, uh, and uh, it, it, it it doesn't you know cover uh, the subcontinent, but later you know iterations successor states um, go there as well. Uh, so this is you know kind of the beginning point of my narrative. Um, the idea is that, you know, this empire, uh, played a similar role for the, the, the area that we call Asia, uh, that particular continent as the Roman empire did for, uh, Europe in a way it's kind of this unifying force. Uh, and, you know, the, sorry what what um, what characterizes this you know the chinggisid model as i describe in the book is this uh, ambition for universal empire <laughs> to, this ambition to have world empire um, this is how you know the the khan the, his rule is, the great khan his rule is uh, legitimized by the fact that he's a world conqueror um, being a world conqueror uh, essentially shows uh rivals that you know the great khan is has the heaven's mandate so what we what we find in this uh, empire and its successors is this uh this ambition for creating universal empires and that ends up you know creating uh what i call world orders because you know (laughs) this expansionist vision uh um uh, essentially um, drives these uh, drives those who subscribe to this particular sovereignty model to um, impose their will on the world the, as much as they can. They end up ordering the world for better or worse, uh, and that's you know that's the account that uh, I'm developing. So it starts with you know the the, the empire of uh, Genghis Khan and. Uh, the thirteenth century, then they're the successor Khanates, you know, as the uh, Mongol Empire broke into four. Uh and that is replaced by uh the Timurids and the early Ming, and I argue that even the early Ming uh, were you can see the influences of uh of the previous world order in the early Ming, even though they ostensibly rejected you know um uh, the Mongols. Uh and then you know by the time we get to the fifteenth, sixteenth centuries you can you can trace the influences of the previous order on the Ottomans, the Safavid and the Mughals who were uh all competing with each other um to prove that they were you know universal sovereigns. Uh and then I also you know trace the influences of that competition on Europe. Um I discuss the um, influences on Moscovy. so the book you know <laughs> gives a big picture view of all of you know eurasia in this uh, particular time period
0: i mean this largely anticipates my my following question uh, after genghis khan's demise his universal empire split into four as you said large well confederations we might call them or aspirational world making projects in their own right how did the following centuries further consolidate or modify this early Genghisid model of interpolity order. Um, so could you just elaborate further on some some of the details of, of these modifications of th- this initial, initial model uh, spurring from the 13th century?
1: Yes, thank you. So, as I said, the initial empire covers much of Asia, uh, so that, you know, it's not quite a universal empire i mean there are of course areas that are outside of it but it's it does it's the it's the one that approaches the vision of a universal empire uh, the most uh, of course you know this is also you know the known world at the time <laughs> so as far as you know uh, people in the 13th century uh, are concerned genghis khan comes very close to um, achieving universal empire, but then, uh, that's not sustainable. So, uh, there's, you know, infighting between, uh, you know, potential successors, there's, you know, civil war, and eventually that, uh, that empire, um, uh, um, breaks into f- uh, four pieces. I mean, already, you know, the in the administrative mo- model of the Mongols, they, they, the practice was to give, uh, uh you know, essentially, you know, um, territories to various you know sons so there is it's already built into uh, the administrative you know governance model that there is a division uh, and uh, in um, in the 14th early 14th century that becomes you know essentially the de facto situation so you have you know golden hordes in the area what's called what later came to be called the Golden Horde uh, in the area that is present-day Russia you have the Ilkhanids its in present- day, you know, Iran or, you know, the Middle East, we could say, and then the Chagatai Ulus, Ulus in present-day Central Asia. And then the, you have the Yuan dynasty in uh, China. So these are the four pieces. And obviously, anytime, you know, there's more than one claimant <laughs> to uh, having a universal empire, That's there's, there's a kind of a contradiction, right? I mean, the, fact, like, the, the situation on the ground... The fact that these four khanates had to kind of coexist together I mean initially they were fighting but eventually they settled into what IR scholars may call a balance of power arrangement uh, and uh, you know because they also were interested they were, the Mongols were, were very interested in trade so eventually you know it's more beneficial in some ways to exist coexist rather than uh you know, fight each other to uh, prove this universal empire claim. But that creates uh, a legitimacy uh, problem. And this is, in fact, an ongoing problem with the uh, Genghisit sovereignty model because it is justified by claims to, you know, universal empire, world empire, world conquest. Anytime, you know, conquest slows down or uh, the empire settles, you know, into a situation where it has to coexist with other empires, Uh, even if that's beneficial economically, you know, it creates a legitimacy crisis for the sovereign. So what we end up seeing with the Khanates and also the other successor states is that they end up bringing in other other things to legitimize their rule. So they end up, for instance, you know, converting to... uh, you know, the local religion often, uh, the, you know, the ruling house uh, uh, ends up converting. So, you know, you, this happened with, you know, the Golden Horde and the Ilkhanids, uh, you know, to Islam. Um, of course, the Yuan are, you know, sinicized. And uh, so they uh, try to legitimize, like, their rule by, uh, you know, um, picking up other kind of, you know, uh, normative, uh repertoires that you know the local population the ruling pop po- ruled the population that's being ruled may uh, accept uh so what we end up seeing sorry to, this is a long answer to your question but after the first <laughs> version of you know uh Genghis Khan's model what we end up seeing is uh, like hybrid models uh so nobody can quite rep- replicate uh Genghis Khan's success everybody else has to um find uh hybrid modes of legitimation. Uh universal empire plus something else, usually uh, religion. Uh and that's you know, that's what makes it you know interesting. The model is constantly reproduced but it's also modified. So the you know the Timurid empire, the Timur ends up modifying it in different ways. Um and that the Ottomans, the Safavids and the Mughals also they end up, you know, modifying the original
0: uh, model. This is exactly what I was fishing for. Uh, Thank you. And and, I mean, if I dare, I will ask you again to take us into another side corridor uh, and just briefly touch on the importance of astronomy and astrology in this broader legitimizing uh, repertoire. Uh, uh, You argue in the book that there is no cartography yet and, and as, as our contemporaries now imagine sovereignty maps control of land and territory is is inherent to, to what we uh, deem sovereign. Um, so if you just comment on on, on astronomy and, and its role in the legitimization techniques? Uh,
1: yes yeah, so this the astron astro, interest in astronomy/ slash astrology was a secondary institution of the Genghisattva model that is there from the beginning. And interestingly, you can see it in all of the successor polities. And it was uh, very interesting to chase that thread. So now in terms of, you know, I told you how I uh, came to be, you know, interested in this book project. I started, you know, I started in the Middle East or the Ottoman Empire. And I, you know, seeing that there were influences (laughs) on the Ottomans that could be traced back to this period, you know, I I thought, are are there other, you know, successor polities that have the same kind of influences? And so it's been very interesting to go from the Ottomans to the back, you know, centuries to the Mongols and then kind of trace uh, the influence of the Mongols on other regions Uh, you know, just as they influenced eventually the Ottomans, they have influenced others. And some of these, you know, uh, original institutions, you can very clearly trace in all these, you know, varied contexts. Uh, So the interest in astronomy slash astrology, I might say slash because, of course, pre, you know, (laughs) pre the development of modern science, there isn't a very clear cut distinction between this is astronomy. This is astrology. Let's say an uh, interest in the heavens uh, is, you know, what characterized uh, the Mongols b- because of this idea of, you know, the the ruler, the Great Khan, having the heavens' mandate, uh, which was proven, you know, matching the heavens on earth, you know, by uh, world empire, you know, as above, so below. You know, kind of. I mean, simplifying a bit. I think this was part of their understanding. And in order, you know, so they they're. Uh, I mean, it's not exactly their belief system was very uh, interested in uh, um, what we may call heaven, uh, but not like the, you know, the Christian idea of like heaven, but um, more kind of the sky, <laughs> you know, more uh, empirical understanding of heaven. So that came with, um, yes, this, they came with, you know, interest in uh, astronomy slash astrology, always sponsoring um, the study of the sky. Uh, so starting with the first empire, but you see this with very clearly with the Timurids, for instance. You know, you had the observatory in Samarkand, uh, and then early Ming. Uh, interestingly, they also uh, had uh, you know more than usual amount of interest in uh, astronomy. And then by the time we get to You know, the Ottomans, uh, uh, especially, you know, there's like this interest, this period in the 16th century, there's, you know, astronomy slash astrology, like reading, you know, the skies, um, this idea of Jupiter, uh, Pluto conjunction, you know, signaling potentially, you know, the end of the world, you know, you can see in, you know, 16th century thinking the influence of these themes about you know, sky and the planets. You know, mixed with you know religion, mixed with notions of sovereignty, and then you can very clearly trace the influence of uh, these notions uh, going from you know West Asia into Europe, because this is also a period in Europe where you know there was a fervent interest in uh, astrology, uh, which was less tolerated in Europe, uh, and for the longest time, you know, historians studied what was happening in Europe. Not realizing that this is actually like uh, the lineage of this interest is arguably, you know, located in uh, Asia and goes many centuries back.
0: Fascinating. Um, And in in your retelling of the story, the West, uh, with its regional order based in what we would now call a territorial nation state, is not only a latecomer within this much longer history of world making, but also at least initially. A mere appendage of the Eurasian state system. How did the two patterns of ordering interact, and how did the Western model become almost universal in the last century and a half? I know this is a, a huge question, but this is what we're dealing with here today.
1: Yes. So, I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the uh, arguments in the book, uh, and I think it's 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 not that debatable. I don't. I think I think most people would agree. Uh, economically, you know, culturally, politically, uh, a lot more, <laughs> a lot was happening. A lot more was happening uh, in Asia, Eurasia. Uh, you know, before sixteenth century, for for sure, up to sixteenth seventeenth century, compared to Europe. So, um, you know, Asia is richer. It's politically, you know, more stable. You have, you know, these. Uh, Um, relatively, I mean, you have conquest, obviously, but you have uh, long periods of uh, relative stability. You know, there's trades. So um, Europe is, at that time, more of a, uh, um, more peripheral. I mean, it's more peripheral to the order that exists. Um, It's more of a regional order of itself. And, you know, the most advantageous, um, sorry um maybe you want to cut that out the the actors european actors that uh are who are most prosperous are the ones that are kind of tapped into this asian eurasian space uh to the trade networks you know italian merchants etc etc um so you can see up until uh 16 17th century um you know, if if you ask somebody who lived at that time, you know, where 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 is the center of the world? They, for sure, you know, uh, if uh, if they could have, you know, if they had knowledge, they they wouldn't point to to Europe. So um, if we don't, I mean, one of the arguments I make in the book is if we don't read the ending of the story into history, uh, if we try to evaluate each time period from like the vantage point of the actors. Uh, that lived in that time period. Uh, what matters, who matters, uh, you know, really changes. Uh, yeah, so um, that's kind of the you know the big claim in terms of you know why how did Europe come to uh, dominate uh, you know what or why did the you know the regional uh, order out of Europe or the sovereignty model that was developing in Europe in 16th, 17th centuries uh, come to dominate. Uh, the world I, I should also say Western Europe, not it's not all of Europe come to dominate the world. Um, one of the arguments I make in the book is uh, this seventeenth century uh, was um, kind of a turning point for uh, order making in Asia, and not for you know the usual reasons uh, um, we associate with the seventeenth century. But um, this was, in general, you know, a period of prolonged uh, instability for much of the northern hemisphere. Uh, some historians call this period, you know, the general crisis of the 17th century. Um, what we know is, you know, there was uh, political uh, strife, turmoil all of uh, throughout all of Eurasia. In, in Europe, you have, you know, the Thirty Years' War. You have the English Civil War, etc. But also in other parts of uh, Eurasia, uh, uh, there are many um, political uh, difficulties. You have major, um, prolonged rebellions in the Ottoman Empire, time of troubles in Moscow. You have dynastic change in in China from you know the Ming to the Qing. Um, not all of Eurasia. I mean, so it's not like it's not a, like a simplistic. Um, kind of argument saying all of you know Eurasia politically challenged but what I'm claiming is in 17th century because there was uh, such turmoil for many many decades uh, maybe because of climate change as some historians argue uh, the existing you know ties and networks that connected uh, Asia uh, kind of frayed and although um, um Asian um, empires, Eurasian empires, survived materially, and many went on to have, you know, relatively uh, prosperous, materially prosperous periods afterwards in 18th century. What uh, was lost is this uh, this uh, idea or the practice of uh, Asia, Eurasia, as a um, as a normatively, culturally politically and economically, uh, connected space. Uh, so that fragmentation of 17th century, um, essentially disrupted centuries of connections. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, European actors, Western European actors were already in, you know, uh, in Asian shores, um, um, with, through, you know, maritime connections, uh, which, uh, turned out to be uh, more advantageous. Um, and yeah, so that you know, that disruption created a situation where um, Euro- Euro- European states uh, could take over um, increasingly in 18th century. But probably the real, you know, turning point is, you know, the in- industrial revolution um, and really the 19th century. So there is a kind of idea in international relations that, you know, our international order was properly formed and extended into Asia in in the 19th century. And it connected uh, a very disconnected space, you know, various bits of Asia uh, had never really been connected. Uh, And that's kind of a false notion (laughs) in 18th century Asia was disconnected. You know, the different parts of Asia were relatively disconnected from each other, but that was kind of the exception rather than the rule for the history of Asia. Asia had been much more connected before 18th and 17th century. Uh, So it's that disconnection, that fragmentation um, gave European uh, actors on Asian shores
0: uh, an advantage i will definitely pick up on this thread of asian unity and fragmentation at the end Uh, but before that i would like to shift gears a bit and take us into methodological epistemological territory Uh, at the end of the, the the work you present remarkable discussion of the overall intellectual force and and utility of macro historical approaches um, what has been lost in, in our recent fascination with micro epistemologies as, you know, as evident in, in in your approach?
1: Yeah, thank you. I have an epilogue in the book, as you say, where I grapple with some methodological and some uh, maybe, I mean, one could say ethical <laughs> questions of, you know, what, uh, you know, writing such a um, that's around writing uh, such a macro history. Um, I'm I'm not sure what you know you're you're in history um I assume you know similar observations apply at least in international relations there's been a turn towards um micro approaches and that's because you know international relations used to be you know kind of a grand narrative grand theory uh, kind of discipline and a lot of that was charged rightly for being um maybe um not doing justice <laughs> to how you know complicated things are and being eurocentric and you know I mean there, there are all sorts of you know criticisms as IR as it used to be that are probably warranted. Um and there's been an uh, increased interest in methodologies that you know focus uh, on micro patterns and experiments or you know archival work, if you're doing historical uh, IR work. Or... Anyway, so, I mean, many of these, uh, I mean, I'm not against these trends. But um, as I said, you know, I, I looked for an account <laughs> in my own work uh, for an account of, you know, Asian history or IR history that had Asia or Eurasia, the rest, you know, or the rest of the world. I mean, it's I, my book is about Asia, but you could say that uh, about any part of the world and it just didn't exist so we have the traditional you know ir narrative that's focused on westphalia and what happens afterward. afterwards the story of expansion of international order and then there are you know people criticizing that narrative saying it's eurocentric we shouldn't you know we should uh, you know we should be aware that it's eurocentric but you know criticism isn't enough uh you can criticize something and you know those criticisms uh, are often well-received. I mean, people do want to do better, but unless you provide an alternative <laughs> macro account that has other regions and other actors and other forms of sovereignty and order in, then the criticism doesn't disturb uh, you know, the grand narrative um, because we all need to have a sense of how things relate to each other you know, even to study things at a micro level. So if we don't replace, you know, the macro account with something else, the macro account always lives on, regardless of how much it's criticized for being, you know, eurocentric or reductionist or whatnot. So that's what I'm trying to do in this book, and I think um, we need more of that. You know, we need to balance our sensitivities to, uh, you know, the the micro with uh, attempts to provide better uh, macro narratives. Uh, And I'm not saying, I'm sure, you know, there are, I'm sure there are many, you know, flaws with my account. So uh, (laughs) I'm not claiming that, you know, I've fixed (laughs) the issue, but I'm hoping that there will be others who join me in trying to improve the, uh, the macro versions of our, you know, disciplinary uh, histories uh, because we all need it. Um, Yeah, and then there are like ethical questions that surround me, what, you know, um, I I wanted to kind of, you know, reflexively consider what does it mean for me, somebody who, you know, spent at least, you know, the first two decades of her life in in Turkey from a Turkish background to push this kind of macro narrative that focuses on Eurasia, because, of course, Eurasianism <laughs> or Pan-Asianism, you know, these, these are, uh, uh, these have political uh, connotations um, and have had, you know, uh, political projects attached to them in the past in various, you know, geographies. So I, I try to kind of think about, you know, what, what are my motivations <laughs> in providing such an account? I, uh, in the epilogue, I try to grapple with those
0: questions as well. Yeah, the perfect setup for, for my final question. Uh, you yourself admit in the book that there is no international theory or historiography or, or political theory without politics, uh, personal politics. Is your work at least in part motivated or should I say grounded in a search for alternative future visions of Eurasian order that would not be based on race, religion, or, or ethnicity, uh, exclusive in, in any way?
1: Um, well, in, yeah, in a way. I mean, um, mo- I, I mean, I'm most interested in, you know, doing better social science or better theory, you know, better history, which for me is all about, you know, relationality. You know, once you you start studying things, you realize that, you know, these boxes we have drawn... Uh, in the present day, around you know the n- nation or religion or cultures, you know they don't really travel well back in time um, so um that's essentially the kind of vision i'm trying to advocate you know um not uh, not work with uh you know present day categories uh realize that everything is kind of connected uh and it's the relations that shape us and our, you know, predecessors in these, uh, in these regions, um, realizing, you know, I just in the, in the process of writing this book, you know, I realized how much, uh, is shared between, I don't know, like, uh, between Istanbul and, you know, Delhi, you know, it's, it's just because we have these like very, you know, uh, nationalized historiographies. Uh, and once you recover that, that, that past of, you know, connections, um, between, you know, Eastern Europe or Moscovy and, you know, China and so on, uh, then the world looks different. The world looks (laughs) uh, more tolerable in some ways. And I was, in the book, I was, you know, as I was writing it, I was both worried that, you know, this narrative of shared heritage could be used, and it has been used in the past to, you know, make a case for autocracy or, like, new forms of empire. So certainly that's not what I'm pushing uh, but there's also the, you know, the story of people who were subjected to these same forces, uh, and as a result, you know, there were you know, silver linings in these imperial projects, uh, cultural exchange, um, connections, um, maybe some mutually um, beneficial transformations as a result. So it's the, it's the good part of that shared history that I'm trying to recover. Um, and maybe, you know, that could be uh, the basis for an inspiration for, you know, more c- cross-cultural, cross-national dialogue across Asia and Eurasia.
0: And, and where is this project taking you or where has it taken you? Uh, what are you currently working on, Dr. Zarakov?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've already talked about this period of, you know, general crisis, as it's sometimes called in the 17th century. In the book, you know, that's kind of like a punctuation point for me, a moment of fragmentation that explains uh, partly why, you know, Eastern world orders uh, ceased to be (laughs) uh, after the 17th century. But as a a result of, you know, learning and writing about that period, uh, which wasn't my main focus in the book, because in the the book I was trying to explain the presence of order, not so much (laughs) less so, how it fell apart I became interested in these periods of crisis uh well, well what might, might be called systemic crisis maybe because there are others so I think in my next project I'm going to try to you know th- think about this concept of crisis maybe look at some um periods characterized as such uh, in history um look at how people perceived, like people in those periods perceived uh, their situation and whether there are like, you know, lessons to be learned for present-day international relations from such periods. Uh, but that's, you know, just a very preliminary kind of idea. But I think that's where I'm headed next.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Zarakol, it was an immense pleasure talking to you today. And thank you for joining New Books Network.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.